Thanks, Ken. Well, good morning, everyone. Um, some of you know that I like trivia, so we're going to start with a trivia question this morning. There's a famous quote that goes something like this. In this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Does anybody know who said this? Yeah? Mark Twain? No. Any other guesses? An American. An American president, founding father. No, close. George Washington? Jeff? No. Well, we need to do more trivia nights tonight. You have it all wrong. It's Benjamin Franklin. So you know, I think that many of us will agree that there is probably a morsel of truth in what Benjamin Franklin said. But no, this sermon, can I get the slides up? There we go. <laughs> no, this sermon is not gonna be about paying your taxes, but Grieve With Hope might be a good title for that sermon too. This morning, we're going to talk about the other thing that Benjamin Franklin said was certain of, a topic many of us don't like to talk about, but something we all have to deal with. We all know death is something we will have to face in the lives of our friends, in the lives of our loved ones, and in our own lives. But it's a topic we often shy away from. It's not the stuff of small talk, and certainly not dinner party conversations. Now, as you know, I'm Chinese, and so coming from an Asian background, death is one of the biggest taboo topics of all. You certainly don't talk about death or mortality with any of your elders because that would bring bad luck. But I don't know about you, but I think in any culture, in any background, death is not easy to talk about. I came across an article that referred to a research study done by a German sociologist named Ermheld Sack. And in his research, he found that when it comes to having conversations or discourses about death, there are three types of people. There are death experts, death investigators, and death deniers. Death experts had a clearly defined image of death, and they had a view about the afterlife, whether there is one or there isn't one. And you might be religious, you might not be religious. Then there are the death investigators. Death investigators are curious about death. They want to know more about death. They're not sure, but they like reading about the science and sociology. And so they keep inquiring about death. Then there is the largest group, death deniers. People who are more about living life today about their families, about their work. And so they don't like to think about death, and they certainly don't have um, a real desire to even enter into a conversation about death. Well, today, we're going to talk about death. And in particular, we will look at what the Bible says about our ultimate future and how those who follow Christ and our, our ultimate future of those who follow Christ will give us the ability to face and to handle death. We live towards what we look forward to. 
So what do we have to look forward to? Today, we're going to take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 to 18. But before we look at 1 Thessalonians and that passage, I'd like to give you a brief overview and background of the Thessalonian church. So 1 Thessalonians is one of the many letters that Paul wrote and is found in the New Testament. Paul wrote this letter to a new church in the city of Thessalonica. You can see from the map that this city was in the crossroads of Europe and Asia Minor. It was a cosmopolitan port city that attracted people from all sorts of backgrounds. And Paul preached the gospel there. And we are told in the Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 17, that many Greeks and many women came to believe. However, Paul was only able to spend a short time there. His message of Jesus, his death and resurrection actually created an uproar among the people in that city. And Paul and his friend Silas actually had to escape the city at night. Yet, by the grace of God, the community of believers that Paul left behind seemed to thrive. In the first four chapters of the letter, Paul commends the Thessalonians for the way that they are living their faith. Paul says that they are an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Paul encourages these first Thessalonian, these Thessalonian believers, urging them to continue what they are doing, walking to please God and to do so more and more. So with that background, we come to our verses that will be the focus of our talk this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 to 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with the cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other, one another, with these words. This passage is certainly rich, and there are a lot of things that we can, be, we can pull out of this passage. But to guide us today, I thought we would unpack the passage by looking at three main questions. How should we deal with death and dying? What is our response? And as you can tell from my title, Paul wants us to respond with hope. So where do we find this hope? Where does our hope rest? And then, what does our hope assure us of? And I'm going to say that this passage tells us that we are assured of resurrection and reunion. Response, rest, resurrection, and reunion. So let's go to 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. 
As I mentioned, Paul had previously been commending and encouraging the Thessalonians about how they were living. But then, in verse 13, he seems to be taking a different turn. He starts talking about those who have died, and in light of that, how to respond. So why does Paul talk about the topic of death? Some commentators have speculated that the Thessalonians were discouraged and faced immediate circumstances where they were confronted with death. They were new Christians, and there, were there was persecution in that church at that time. Remember that Paul and Silas had to flee the city at night for safety. Some commentators believe that a number of believers had been actually martyred for their, for their faith, and that left the Thessalonians grieving. Other commentators I read said that the Thessalonians, who had a Greek background, were grappling with their newfound faith and needed to reconcile or to understand their Greek culture in light of the Christian message. As I mentioned, the Thessalonian church had many Greek believers, and as Greeks, they had a particular view of the afterlife. The Greek view of death can be seen in these three quotes that are behind me. I was not, I am not, I care not. That was a common inscription found on tombstones from that time period. A poet says, hopes are for the living, but the ones who die are without hope. The sun can set and rise again, but once our brief light sets, there is one unending night to be slept through. M.T. Wright, a theologian, summarized the Greek view of death as being a one-way street. Greek families would grieve and mourn for long periods of time to show reverence and respect. And so it is in this cultural setting that Paul wants to teach the new Thessalonian believers the real difference in their newfound faith. So to paraphrase verse 13, Paul says, with respect to death, I want you to be informed so that you may not grieve as those who have no hope. Now, it's first important for us to say that Paul is not saying that Christians should not grieve. Grief is indeed an appropriate response to death. We grieve because death strikes at our very core. Why do we grieve? I think there's two main reasons. In death, we are confronted with our ultimate weakness. No matter how hard we try, we can eat well, we can exercise, we can have great medicine and even great technology, our bodies will break down. And I'm getting middle-aged, and I know that our bodies are starting to break down. We get sick, and we experience pain. Our bodies fail. We grieve. Secondly, in death, we also see the ultimate separation of relationships. Relationships are what gives our lives meaning. And we grieve because death brings an end to the loving relationships we hold so dear. But Jesus grieved. When confronted with the death of his friend, Lazarus, we read in John that when Jesus saw Lazarus' sister Mary weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, 
Jesus was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly touched. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. When faced with death of a good friend, Jesus wept. It also says that Jesus was also deeply moved and greatly troubled. Tim Keller, an author and pastor, said that deeply moved and greatly troubled is a bit of a tame translation of the Greek. The Greek word here, anabrimesato, conjures the image of the snort of a horse at war or in a race. I kind of picture those bulls that are about to attack and you see smoke coming out of their nostrils. It actually describes outrage and anger mixed with sorrow. When confronted by death, Jesus may have also had feelings of anger, just like we would have feelings of anger. But in our passage today, Paul says our response to death should not be limited to grief. Instead, to paraphrase verse 13, Paul is saying that we should grieve, but grieve with hope. Now, we use the word hope fairly loosely. Our family went on a short trip to Bellingham last weekend. And, um, you know, if you were in our car, you could probably hear us say things like, I hope the lineup at the border is not going to be too long. Or I hope Rogers can get this outage fixed fast. <laughs> or you could hear Evan or Derek saying, I hope we can get some ice cream. In the D household, and maybe yours, we use the word hope to express wishful thinking. But that's not the hope that we are talking about. In the Bible, hope is a confident expectation. Hope is the assurance of something we are looking forward to and something we can live for. Paul is saying, I want you to have hopeful grief. Again, Tim Keller says, take your anger and grief and rub hope deep into it. Press hope into your grief. Infuse your grief deeply with hope. And so after telling us how we should respond to death, Paul tells us where we can find this hope. What is the source of this hope? And then what this hope assures us of. So let's take a look at verse 14. Where does our hope rest? For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. We can infuse hope into our grief because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Our hope rests in Jesus. Paul's central message is that because of a historical event that changed everything, the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is joy, joyous certainty in the future for those who believe. Now, scholars believe that this sentence in verse 14 is actually a quote from a creedal statement in the early church. And what that means is that it was part of a statement of beliefs that was repeated over and over again by the early believers to affirm what they should be believing. Jesus' death and resurrection are essential. 
Now, why is this important, and why is this important for us today? Well, if our hope rests in Jesus and his resurrection, praise the Lord, our hope does not rest on you or me. It means that it doesn't depend on us. Our hope for the future of what happens after death does not depend on whether we are good enough, we are holy enough, whether we work hard, or whether we can prove ourselves. It does not rest on me. It doesn't rest on you or your circumstances. It does not rest on our good works. Our rest and our hope is in Jesus. It is the assurance and confidence of what Jesus has already done that gives us hope. And this is in contrast to what many might believe today. For many, if there is a belief in any life after death, any rewards for entry into heaven, they will usually think that the entry into heaven depends on how they've lived on earth, how they've done good works. But in contrast, the Christian gospel, the good news, is that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Our hope rests in Jesus and his resurrection. So what does this hope assure us of? Let's take a look at verse 15 and 16. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with the cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, from the outset, I want to say that these verses, 15 and 16, and the following verse, 17, have given rise to a number of different interpretations. And if you are not here for the first two talks in this series, Ken outlined different views of when this second coming of the Lord will take place and what it might look like. I invite you to go listen online or on the podcast to hear those messages. For this morning, I want to focus on what all Christians agree to, and that is in verse 16. The dead in Christ will rise. In the age to come, when Christ returns, the dead in Christ will rise. The hope we have assures us of a resurrection. Christians have hope that death is not the end. Now, Paul links the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of believers. In modern times, like today, we tend to think of Jesus' resurrection as one event that took place a long time ago and something supernatural happened to Jesus alone. But, and we tend to think separately of Christ's second coming as another event that is sometime in the unknown future. But Paul and the early church thought of Jesus' resurrection as the beginning of the general resurrection of believers. The image is like that of a harvest. The resurrection of Jesus was thought of as the first fruits and as a foretaste of a bigger harvest to, to come. One theologian, whose name is Eugene Boring, and yes, B-O-R-I-N-G, <laughs> put it this way. Paul is saying to the theologian believers that God's raising and vindication of Jesus is a promise 
that God will raise and vindicate those who have died in Christ. Now, the theme of resurrection of believers is all over the writings of Paul and throughout the other letters he wrote. In the other letters in the New Testament, Paul tells us more of what this resurrection will mean for us. Paul, in his letter to the church in Philippi, writes in chapter 3, verse 20 to 21, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies into his glorious body. In the first letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 15, Paul goes into more detail. We're going to take a look at chapter 15 from verses 51 to 58. Notice the similarities with our passage in Thessalonians. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is the defeat of our physical bodies. We grieve because we are confronted with our weaknesses. But through Jesus, we are promised new glorious bodies because of the victory of Jesus over death. Our hope in Christ assures us of a transforming resurrection. Now, isn't that something to look forward to? I read this quote that I like from Gary Shogren, who is a missionary and pastor, and it elaborates on the transformation. He writes, the gospel does not promise some final release from the physical body, but it's perfect transformation. Take the woman with arthritic fingers. In Christ, she can look forward to not reincarnation as an animal or, if she is lucky, another human being, who in turn is doomed to growing old again, nor laying aside the body to live as a disembodied spirit, nor being extinguished. Rather, she can experience the transformation of her very hand so that the joints work precisely as her maker intended and in ways beyond our current reckonings. Our promise is that our failing bodies, our weak bodies, are remade, resurrected into a new body that God had, had intended it always to be. This passage also tells us one more thing that our hope assures us of. Let's take a look at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together to meet with the Lord in the air. And we will be with the Lord forever. The image here, when Christ returns, is that we will be reunited with those who are dead in Christ and those who are alive in Christ, and we will meet the Lord. Now, this term, meet the Lord, 
is uh, a Greek term, apantisin. This word means not to simply encounter someone or to bump into someone, but rather is an action of going out to meet an arrival, especially an arrival of honor. Perhaps for us today, it might be rolling out the red carpet or organizing a delegation to welcome someone important. In fact, in Paul's time, this word was used when a dignitary came to visit a city and the inhabitants would pay them tribute by going out of the city to meet them at the proper time. They would then accompany him back into the city he was planning to enter. So what Paul was envisaging is Jesus coming and both believers that are dead and alive ascending to honor him and that they will accompany him back to earth. I think of the contemporary image of the queen coming to visit, and there are tens of thousands of people coming together, welcoming her, waving, people getting on other people's shoulders, and they are with joy. Or maybe those East Asian or Greek weddings where there are guests and partygoers lifting the bride and the groom up on chairs and are dancing around them in a joyful procession. The picture that is painted here is a beautiful reunion of believers and believers with the Lord. What our hope assures us of is a joyful celebration of believers joining together and proclaiming Jesus's return. With death, we grieve because it seems like the ultimate end of our relationships has happened. We will be forever separated. But this passage tells us that we will be reunited again in the joyful return of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. Our hope rests in Jesus's death and resurrection. Our hope assures us of a transforming resurrection. Our hope assures us of a joyful reunion. If you are just here today, and you're here just to explore the Christian faith, I hope the things that we've talked about have been an invitation for you to think more about these things and also to have ongoing conversations with the people in this community and in your own community. But Paul gives us, as Christians, so much to be hopeful for, so much to look forward to. So what does Paul tell the believers in Thessalon Thessalonica about what to do with all these things. What does he tell them to do after sharing with them this hope? In verse 18, Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. I think if we um, let the words of hope sink into our hearts and get deep within us, it will shape the way we live. We live towards what we look forward to. And if we live towards this hope, I think it cannot help but transform us to being people of encouragement. I love spending time with people that encourage me. Don't you? People of encouragement are people in my life that remind me that my value does not depend on what I do, how much I accomplish, how good I am but rather they keep pointing me to the truth that I am loved by God so much that Jesus died for me and rose again 
And because of that, my ultimate hope rests solely in what Jesus has already accomplished. People of encouragement walk alongside me when I grieve, when I am troubled, when I am anxious. And when I have needs, they are there to help in practical ways. They pray for me. They point me to scripture. They point me to God's promises. They bring meals, cookies, and send text messages just to check in. People of, encourage, of encouragement attract other people to the gospel, the good news. People see in them something different, something special. While encouragers see the brokenness of this world, they don't deny the death, hurt, and pain, and that grieves them. But they are not cynical, they are not bitter, they are not overly anxious, and they are not always pointing the finger. They live joyfully and generously. They live hope-filled lives because they know that the best is yet to come. Brothers and sisters, friends at ECC, let us be so filled with hope that that hope pours out of us into the lives of the people around us. And so we become known as people of encouragement. Let's pray.